Hey everyone, welcome to uh, another Your Amigos podcast uh, as part of our Astro GU series. Tom and I are here with Matt Golski, friend of the show, going to talk about a couple abstracts uh, that involve perioperative nivolumab and urothelial cancer. One is the Checkmate 274 update, and then another um, neoadjuvant uh, design. So, Matt, let's start. Let's jump in with Checkmate 274. Maybe you could just sort of give us a, you know, a sentence on what the original data showed and then talk about the update. And, and I'm sure Tom and I will have a lot of questions. Uh, sure. So Checkmate 274, adjuvant nivolumab versus placebo in patients with high-risk muscle-invasive urothelial cancer after radical surgery. So the initial report of the data was with 5.9 um, months of minimum follow-up. And at that time, the, the co-primary endpoints were met, um, an improvement in disease-free survival in the intensive population with a hazard ratio of 0.7, and in the subset of patients with tumors with high levels of pd one expression with a hazard ratio of 0.55. So that was 5.9 months minimum follow-up. Now we have 31.6 months minimum follow-up. The hazard ratio for disease-free survival in the all-comer population is 0.71, so that's compared to 0.70 at the time of the initial report. And for the uh, subset of patients with tumors with high levels of pd one expression, the hazard ratio was 0.52 compared to 0.55 at the time of the initial report. Uh, so much longer follow-up, and the uh, effect size has remained remarkably consistent. Hey, Matt, one thing I noticed when I was looking back at the data, almost half the patients were node positive um, at resection. Is that right? Uh, let me 47% if I'm looking at it. That's correct. Yeah, that, I guess I didn't realize it was that high in the initial presentation. I don't know that that matters necessarily, it just gives obviously patients a higher risk of recurrence, but it's sure. just something that struck me. Yeah, and remember, this was a high-risk population different than adjuvant studies in the past. Even though we call it an adjuvant study, the population is completely different than the adjuvant chemo studies because these patients had received neoadjuvant chemo uh, or weren't eligible for it. Uh, Matt, what do you think is most interesting about this data? Uh, so I think there are two things that are interesting. Um, uh, two main things that are interesting. One is just the, um, the uh, size of the effect when you actually look at the medians. Uh, so, th so the median disease-free survival with, with Nevo versus placebo in the uh, intent-to-treat population uh, was 10.9 months versus 22 months. Uh, but for the patients with tumors harboring high levels of PD-1 expression, it was 8.4 months versus 52.6 months. Um, so, so these are not minor differences. The other thing that's interesting is that there is ad admittedly exploratory analysis of second progression-free survival, which is the first time these data have been shown. And there's a significant improvement in second progression-free survival in both the intent-to-treat population and in the subset of patients with, with tumors with high levels of PD-1 expression. So this notion that uh, you know, all of the benefit of adjuvant immune checkpoint blockade sort of washes out if you include what happens when patients recur and get uh, um, immune checkpoint blockade in the metastatic setting. You know, these analyses, again, hypothesis generating, but really don't support that notion. And Matt, it looked like all the hazard ratios for ITT and pd one positive were sort of remarkably consistent, right, in the 0.7 and 0.5 range basically across PFS2, distant metastasis-free, non-urothelial tract. I mean, they all looked, to me, pretty consistent. Would you agree? Yeah, they're, they're really quite consistent. And then to your, to your second point about PFS2, and I'll ask it before Tom does, that would suggest that there could be an overall survival benefit to, to nivolumab in this setting, right? If you're 
if the effect lasts and persists and isn't washed out, as you say. Do you, do you know when we're going to see that data? Yeah, so I, I guess I would just point out um, to that point. So maybe distant metastases for survival, even a better surrogate for that, arguably. And so distant metastases for survival, 0.74 in the intent-to-treat population, 0.58 in the uh, tumors with high levels of PD-1 expression. So, you know, we've all been through these large randomized phase three study analyses before and when hierarchical analyses are used in, in their event driven um, in their blinded. Um, it's it's sometimes difficult to know when those numbers are going to hit uh, that we'll be able to see those analyses. So I'm blinded to that analysis. Uh, all I know is that it uh, it's event driven and that there's a hierarchy because it's a secondary endpoint in terms of uh, use of, of alpha. So Matt, a couple of things. Firstly, on these the hazard ratios, the the upper limit of the distant metastasis free survival, it's in the mid 0.9s, 0 0.92. 0 and PFS2 is 0 0.98. So those two analyses are borderline. You know, there is a danger, of course. 0 0.98 is quite close to 1, 0 0.92, less close. But clearly an OS signal isn't a foregone conclusion in the ITT population. Would you think that's fair? I think that's okay to state, but look at the medians. The median DMFS for uh, placebo in the intent to treat is 28.7 months versus 47.1 months. Yes. Uh, and for the PD-1 high is 20.7, and it's not reached yes. uh, if, with NEVA. I, so, no, that, so there's a glass half full approach and a half <laughs> empty approach. I'm British. So I'm happy, that's, and I'm happy to take either side of those. Um, so I guess that's the first issue. The second, which I think is interesting, is the EMA has gone down a pdl one positive route. And this is a hugely important issue because the drugs being widely given in adjuvant setting in the biomarker positive population and the, your PFS2 hazard ratio, um, 0 0.54, 0 0.37 to 0.79. I'm guessing that you're more confident there's going to be an OS signal in the pdl one positive population. Would you agree with that? Oh, I think all all of the effect size for all of the endpoints would suggest that. Um, I, I but but the the all of the endpoints so far have reached statistical significance, primary and secondary and exploratory for both populations. Um, and so, is this going to be the one analysis that doesn't hold up? Possibly, um, but that 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 hasn't been the case so far. So, just for the purposes of clarity you are more confident the PDL on positive is going to hit OS than the ITT or not? No, oh, I, I, I am more confident because the effect size has oh. been larger across every analysis, but I'm also not convinced that there won't be a benefit in the all-comer population because every other endpoint has shown that. Do you think it is acceptable for organizations like the EMA to look at the biomarker negative population because we currently have a biomarker positive signal and demand to see a signal in the biomarker positives as well as the negatives because clearly at the moment you can see a committee sitting down not involved of course you can see a committee sitting down saying we've got this really strong signal in the biomarker positive population it's hit that os bit the biomarker negatives we're going to look at separately at the moment let's look at the metastasis if you look at the you know, ones that are coming in at 0 0.5, the other ones coming in 0 0.8 for PFS2. It's very, it's very likely the PDO on positive population is driving a lot of the ITT benefit. And therefore, it's possible or even likely 
the PDL1 negative population is not going to come in with an overall survival mm. signal. And so under those circumstances, the EMA may come back and say, actually, we still like, even though it's an ITT signal, we still like the OS signal. And in fact, there's no OS signal in the biomarker negatives. What would you say if you were on the EMA committee, if that's what they say? Uh, I mean, I think those decisions are based on more than just the um, pre-specified analyses in the in the study, and there are some economic considerations as well. Um, so it depends where you draw the line in the sand. If you want to miss some patients who benefit from therapy, um, and, and draw that line so that you maximize value per se, then that's a, a reasonable option, recognizing that you are probably missing patients who benefit from treatment by doing that. Hey, Meta, Tom, if you're done with your OS signal. What's that? There will come a time, of course, when the community will, I mean, there'll be a plateau in OS at some point. The events may or may not come in with time. Clearly, the it's a secondary endpoint, not a primary endpoint. Clearly, the patients have all finished their period of adjuvant nivolumab because it's not an ongoing treatment. So it won't contaminate the signal to find out where we are now. Um, there are many other partners, other sponsors, who with a positive trial like this have showed an OS signal, an interim cut of an OS signal in the knowledge that it hasn't got the final analysis, hasn't come through yet. Um, what... In your opinion, what's holding us back? Because clearly patients would like to see. I don't think the data is going to change. And you can still have your final significant OS signal. Because you can say this isn't a significant, this, is, this isn't the final analysis. This is an interim analysis. And we're waiting for the final analysis. What do you think is holding us back to have a, a look knowing it's not mature yet? So my understanding is that that's a company policy. Uh, and I know that companies approach the statistical analysis plan um, differently for secondary endpoints. And some are purists and say we're not going to report until um, we do the final analysis and, and others are not that stringent. Um, I think from a pure statistical standpoint, it's probably the right approach not to do it. But of course, there are balances between that and pragmatism. And you would think with this you know, three years of follow-up, we're certainly getting to that point of statistical maturity in the near future, I guess, just, you know, given the natural history of the disease, et cetera. I want to, I want to move on and ask about some subsets, recognizing, of course, the, the danger in over-interpreting subsets in your uh, forest plot. So the first one is about um, upper tract disease. So the hazard ratio for upper tract, either renal, pelvis, or ureter in the 1.2 to 1.4 range and huge confidence intervals, I get it. But do you think that's a real signal? What's the different biology or is it just small subsets? Yeah, I mean, I think the challenge with this subset in particular is that one could have some hand-waving biological plausibility because we know upper tract tumors look a little bit different than tumors that originate in the bladder. At least, at least the molecular characteristics of those tumors are overrepresented by more luminal-like tumors compared to those that start in the bladder. So maybe there's some relationship between that and the signal. All of that said, it's a, um, it's a subset analysis. It's, it's hypothesis generating. It doesn't correct for other potential confounders. Uh, so one might say then, well, what if you have a patient with an upper tract tumor with high levels of pd one expression? What, what, what do you do in that situation? Uh, or there seem to be a larger effect size in who got neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So should you give patients adjuvant nevo who 
glad an upper tract tumor and neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So I think that's the challenge of interpreting subsets. Not only are they small, but they're univariate analyses, which don't account for potential concerns. Fair. Fair. In practice, if you had an upper tract patient who didn't get neoadjuvant therapy, and you can answer this based on pd one status or not, uh, would you be more inclined to give adjuvant nevo or adjuvant chemo based on pout? So a patient who's eligible for cisplatin, it's sort of it, it's, it's sort of easier because those patients would not have been eligible for for checkmate two seventy four and adjuvant cisplatin based chemotherapy is standard. I think that because we have pout, makes this slightly more challenging. Um, because you can use carboplatin-based chemotherapy based on PAUT. So I, I typically discuss both options with patients. And PAUT was the adjuvant chemotherapy study that was positive a trend towards OS. And, and I think that... Oh, oh, sorry, Brian, you had a second point. Well, I just wanted to, I wanted to push Matt. So you discuss it with the patient. They say, okay, doc, you're the expert. What should I do? Yeah, so I would say... <laughs> That's usually how those discussions go. Yeah, I would say in this situation, and I don't do this... I don't do this for all patients, but in this situation, I think pd one expression can sometimes be a tiebreaker. And I do look at that um, in terms of making the overall treatment recommendation. Um, Matt, what do you think about the carboplatin subpopulation of PAL? Do you think it's a, do you, do you think that's a, because some people say, well, it's underpowered, it's relatively small. Um, the data is actually not quite as good. Again, it's a forest plot, whatever that means. Um, do you, I mean, are you bought into, are you bought into chemotherapy, gem cyst, gem carbon? I know, for example, Joachim Bellman says, listen, we should, and in fact, the European guidelines um, recommend strongly to give cisplatin-based chemotherapy, but it doesn't give a strong recommendation for carboplatin-based adjuvant chemotherapy in upper tract disease. Do you agree or disagree with the ESMO guidelines? I mean, the, the party line from the investigators in 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 I'm sure you know this is is that they tested for a statistical interaction between platinum and a treatment effect, and there was no significant interaction. Um, so the the party line is that it doesn't matter which platinum you get based on an analysis of pout. Based on everything we know about cis versus carbo, and we had that discussion. I think I won that hand. I would favor using I would favor using cisplatin-based chemotherapy when I can, but I have used carboplatin-based chemotherapy in, in, in this patient population. Uh, Brian, you had a second point. Far away. I, well, I just want to ask about the histologic variants. So I don't maybe you could remind us the exact eligibility with regards to histology, but this is something that happens in practice. And I know it was minor histologic variants, but as you get more percent variant in your pathology, so to speak, does it influence your decision? I mean, I think it depends on the variant. So yeah. in, in the ambassador study, the adjuvant study uh, with uh, Pembro through the NCI cooperative groups, um, for if it was squamous differentiation, then there was no upper limit for the eligibility as long as there was some urethelial component. And that's because squamous differentiation is felt to represent or, or felt to be common in basal-like bladder tumors, and it's a spectrum, and we know something about the chemotherapy and immune uh, checkpoint blockade sensitivity of those tumors. Um, so I think it depends on the subset. And for squame, I, I certainly have more flexibility in terms of uh, extrapolation of data. And for something like um, uh, um, sarcomatoid, uh, maybe not. Um, so, so Matt, we've talked a little bit about um, the OS uh, signal, the, the Bermuda Triangle OS signal <laughs> trial. Uh, 
we but we do actually have some surrogate endpoints, secondary endpoints that you think are convincing, including metastasis free survival and PFS2. The data looks overall quite similar, but it is impressive. The all the data points we've seen so far we think are quite impressive. Um do you want to just talk a little bit before we switch gears? Because I know there's a circulating tumor DNA study around there kicking around. There's Invigor 011, which is looking at tezolizumab versus placebo in CTA positives. But there's more born, been more recently a nivolumab-based CTDNA trial in this setting. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and why you think it's important? Uh, sure. So Modern is a study that's being developed through the Alliance, uh, the U.S. Cooperative Group. And this is a fantastic study, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> Um, so this is a study that uh, enrolls patients with bladder cancer only, uh, post-cystectomy, and, and the reason for that was based on um, sort of consensus recommendations from the groups who reviewed the study in, in the context of, Brian, your earlier uh, question mm -hmm. about the subgroup analyses. So you can see where, where the community sort of is coming down on that, despite it being hypothesis generating. So in any event... Uh, Adjuvant uh, after cystectomy, patients undergo ctDNA testing using the Signatera platform. If they have detectable ctDNA, they're randomized to Nevo versus Nevo plus uh, relatlimab. And if they have undetectable ctDNA, they're randomized to uh, standard adjuvant Nevo versus surveillance with initiation of Nevo upon molecular conversion. Um, so the study is really trying to address two questions. One, should we escalate treatment patients with detectable ctDNA? And the other is, do all patients with undetectable DNA need adjuvant therapy, or can we wait until molecular recurrence? Um, and so the study should be uh, getting up and running within uh, the next six months. Yeah, great study. It is with LAG3, is that right? That's correct. And why do you think LAG3 is going to work? Uh, so, I mean, certainly loads of data suggesting that LAG3 is, is a potentially important immune checkpoint in general, uh, and then specifically in bladder cancer. A uh, very nice study um, from uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering looking at different um, flow cytometry-based peripheral blood signatures of outcomes, uh, showing that a circulating immunophenotype of LAG3-positive um, T-cells was associated with much worse prognosis uh, in patients treated with immune checkpoint blockade. Tom, if you're done with this abstract, do you want to move on to the next one? I'm super excited about the next one. Let's do it. Matt, why don't you just describe briefly the, the, your second abstract? Sure. So this is, this is the report of uh, HCRNGU16257. So this is a study that we designed in 2016, and it was really based on the notion that we've known that uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy yields a pathological complete response in 30 to 40% of patients, but paradoxically, we only know that there's a PATH-CR after the bladder's already come out. So, of course, we're not the first to um, bring up the question whether or not all patients with muscle invasive bladder cancer need definitive local therapy with cystectomy or radiation, uh, if indeed a PATH-CR is achieved in that high percentage of patients. Our, our thoughts around the barriers to moving a paradigm forward where um, we use clinical restaging information to guide whether or not uh, definitive local therapy is needed um, is that we really need to cl treat clinical restaging as a biomarker. And as a biomarker, we need to define it uniformly and study it rigorously um, to determine its operating characteristics. So that's really how we designed 16257. So patients with muscle invasive bladder cancer got four cycles of Gemsys Nevo, 
after those four cycles, they underwent clinical restaging, which was defined as MRI of the bladder, unless otherwise contraindicated, urine cytology, and cystoscopy with biopsy of any visible tumor, if no visible tumor scar, uh, in, in addition to biopsies along a recommended template in the bladder. Uh, if all of those tests showed no evidence of cancer, a patient was considered to have a clinical complete response. And if they had a clinical complete response, they could opt for no cystectomy uh, and proceed with uh, four more months of nivolumab followed by surveillance. So the primary endpoints were to define the clinical complete response rate and to establish the performance characteristics of clinical CR. In other words, what was the positive predictive of predictive value of clinical CR in, uh, in predicting two-year metastases-free survival. And, and, and patients would choose, you're saying? Uh, yeah, yeah. So patients with a clinical, sorry, patients with a clinical CR could choose no cystectomy and receiving the maintenance NEVO versus undergoing a cystectomy. Patients who didn't achieve a clinical CR were recommended to have a cystectomy. And Matt, what did, we, what did you show? So we enrolled 76 patients, uh, 33 achieved a clinical CR. Uh, so that's a clinical CR rate of 43%. Um, among the patients who achieved a clinical CR, 32 opted for no immediate cystectomy. So only one patient opted for an immediate cystectomy in that group, and they had a uh, papillary non-invasive tumor on final pathology. Um, among the 33 patients uh, who, uh, who had achieved a clinical CR, um, uh, a median follow-up now of 30 months for those patients. About two-thirds of those patients are um, uh, bladder intact, recurrence-free, uh, and uh, the remaining patients have had a local recurrence uh, and subsequently underwent cystectomy. Uh, only one patient in, in that group has passed away. Um, so we showed that clinical CR is a very powerful uh, prognostic factor uh, in outcomes in patients with uh, with muscle invasive bladder cancer, and no distant, none of those patients yeah, have distant. So, so two two out of the thirty three have had uh, metastatic recurrence. One patient who underwent a cystectomy uh, in later developed metastatic disease, and one patient who had an unusual metastatic recurrence with the development of malignant ascites uh, with no documented tumor in the bladder at that time. And I guess one of the issues would be cystectomy is associated with a relatively high relapse rate in this disease anyway, let's say half the patients relapse. What risk factors were this group of patients when you started? Was it a, was it a, a adjuvant tezo nevo group of patients? Was it sort of these high risk group of patients or was it all super low risk? No, it was, it was an average risk group of patients. Um, I think we had, um, uh, probably about 40 to 50% clinical T2, and the rest were clinical T3 and T4. I guess one of the other issues is how did the patients get on who had the cystectomy? Is it that, you know, are those all the losers who end up doing really badly anyway? Because um, I guess one needs to consider both groups when one looks at the overall survival data to work out, you know, how these patients are getting on. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, it, as they say, a picture is worth a thousand words. And in the landmark, the Kaplan-Meier curve showing the landmark analyses for metastasis free survival and overall survival based on achieving a clinical CR or not, I think tells the whole story in this study. And that shows you that if you have a clinical CR, you do incredibly well. 
Um, and if you don't have a clinical CR, I think patients in this study did a little bit better, even if they didn't have a clinical CR, then uh, historically, and whether or not that's the addition of NEVO, I think um, remains to be seen, although that's certainly a, a hypothesis. Now, do Matt, we, in the, I was uh, ask, do we have the same data with just chemo? So we have data with chemo, the caveat being that in the studies with just chemo, the determination on whether or not patients could proceed without cystectomy relied on the presence of DNA damage response gene alteration in the primary tumor. So it's not exactly comparing apples uh, to yeah. apples. That data will be updated in, uh, at GUASCO this year as well in an oral presentation. So I think one will be able to take a look at the long-term outcomes with the two different approaches. Mm -hmm. Matt, do you think, do you have to give it Nivolumab's doing anything here. I mean, a 43% CR rate is a bit higher. It's a bit higher than, than we've seen in some of the trials before. But again, no, it's probably ballpark, but um, it's, it's a good past CR rate, certainly. Do you think the nivolumab's doing anything? Do you think the nivolumab is preventing the recurrence? Or do you think actually it would, we've got similar had we just given the chemotherapy up front? So I think it's really doing something, and I think the clinical CRA doesn't adequately reflect that, and it's the longer-term outcomes that do. And the reason that I say that, Tom, is that essentially what we did is a switch maintenance approach in the, in the uh, muscle-invasive setting. Patients who did the best, who had a clinical CR, went on to receive single-agent EBO for another four months, um, and that was after a clinical CR determination was made, Right. So I, I think that the Nevo absolutely did something, although I can't prove that because it's a single arm study, uh, just based on the longer term outcomes. The other thing I'll mention, and this, it, this doesn't nail it down necessarily either, but high tumor mutational burden was associated with a significantly higher likelihood of achieving bladder intact metastasis for survival. Um, and yeah, I don't know that you would necessarily expect that with chemo alone, uh, just based on the history of TMB as a biomarker. And, and why, why four months and not longer, maybe a total of a year of therapy? It, it, it was sort of based on of around six months of six to seven months of treatment. Um, at the time that we designed the study, we weren't really sure how long would be required. Okay. What are the steps in bladder sparing approaches? Where does this take us? Um, so I, I, would say, I, I would say there are two things in my mind. Um, one is that... Uh, Demonstrating uh, that clinical CR is a robust biomarker um, based on rigorous assessment and consistent definitions of clinical CR, I think really starts to offer the opportunity for risk-based uh, personalization of bladder sparing treatment in, in urothelial cancer in maybe a different way. Um, and, you know, we either treat all patients with chemo radiation or all patients with neoadjuvant chemotherapy followed by cystectomy. And I think using that information, using response assessment in an individual patient um, certainly has the potential to change that paradigm. Even if one isn't ready to not do any local therapy, you can still use this data to, to really think about switching paradigms to a risk-based approach. Um, and, you know, we talk about all these pretreatment biomarkers and we're enamored by pretreatment biomarkers, but I think it's going to be difficult for something to do as good as measuring outcome in situ in an individual patient, seeing how well that treatment works. So I'd say that's one. 
The second is that I do think there are legs for this general treatment paradigm in a subset of patients who are very motivated uh, to receive a treatment regimen like this. Um, and we have version 2.0 and version 3.0 in the works. Um, and so those trials are, one of them's ongoing and the other one is upcoming. This so that, that was gonna be, maybe my last question is, does it need more study to be adopted? How do we get to a point where we say, yeah, this is a reasonable standard? Yeah, you know, I think ultimately we need randomized studies and doing randomized studies with this approach are not straightforward. You know, most right. people who most people who pursue these studies know what they want. Um, and so I think it's going to be challenging. But of course, ultimately, that will be needed to to shift treatment. Matt, is there going to be a time in the future when we don't have to do a systemic and how far away is that? Um, so, I, again, I think ultimately we need randomized studies. I think uh, ex unless the biomarker, the, the uh, composite biomarker data are strong enough that we could feel really comfortable. So what do I mean by that? Well, uh, along with other groups, similar approaches, we're exploring biomarkers to help um, refine these treatment decisions like uterine tumor DNA. So if you combine our current clinical restaging approach with urine tumor DNA to detect the potential for microscopic residual disease in the bladder, um, then perhaps we'll get to a place where everyone's confident enough that we could do this. Does ctDNA have a role to play in this perioptive setting? I think ctDNA absolutely does, but I think urine tumor DNA does as well. And in particular, in detecting microscopic residual disease that's detected on cystoscopy and biopsies, um, that, that's going to be quite important as well. Hey, Matt, this is all really great. Congrats on all the data. I think we're probably at time. Tom, any, anything else from you? We good? We are indeed, Matt. I'm looking forward to a pint of lager soon. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks, Keep Matt. Our Appreciate your time. Thanks a lot.